good morning. Uh, as uh, Jake said earlier, my name's Kyle. I'm Randy's son, and uh, I'm married, but I'm not a parent yet. This is actually just a test to see if, if he really knows what he's talking about. So I, I leave that to your good judgment. Has he succeeded or failed? That's this whole service is about. Uh, no, one reason is that I um, uh, completed doing all three of my sister's weddings. I was very honored to do that. Uh, my sister Lindsay got married out in the middle of nowhere, south of Danville. We still don't really even know what to call the place. It's kind of like the Bermuda Triangle. You just get lost. Uh, lots of Amish people around. Um, Google has an index things there very well. Uh, so I'm, I'm here for this uh, five days, and then I, I teach at an international Christian school in South Korea. I've been doing that for over three years. Before that, I worked for a company called Logos Bible Software, which is a Christian company, and I worked in the mobile education department making uh, adult theological content, uh, adult education, uh, for about a year and a half before that. And I've done different things before that, but I, I went to uh, Bible college at Kentucky Christian, then I went to a small seminary uh, in Ohio, and have done a little bit of postgraduate work after that. So I share that with you to share uh, why I'm here. It's uh, when I talked with dad about preaching coming here, he said, well, I think the education one would be the one you could specialize in. So even though I speak to you as not a parent, I work with parents all the time. In fact, parent-teacher conference day is my favorite day. Uh, it's the time to connect what I see in the classroom with what's happening in the home, as you've learned about in the last couple weeks. It's my favorite day. Uh, good or, whether the conversations go good or bad, I like the knowledge of what this, my students have been experiencing at home. Uh, furthermore, uh, I like talking to the pastors of the kids that I uh, work with. I work with local uh, South Korean children. We work with a lot of uh, South Korean missionary kids who grow up all over the world. And then we work with the foreign faculties uh, students as well, both at my school and at the university whose campus that my school is on. And that's where my wife is a professor and she's there now. Um, so that's, that's why I'm here, as, uh, at least from a technical standpoint, to just try to share some insight about education. And I know it's a, a big question for a lot of parents. What's the best method to, raise, to, to partner with your church and what's happening in home? What's the best method for uh, our kids' education based on what's possible and what's best? Um, furthermore, still, I also hope that I can represent that this question of parenting uh, is not something solely on parents. It takes a village, right? Uh, and that's not a biblical saying, but it's a biblical idea. And uh, from the time I was sitting in these pews as a high school student, I began investing in uh, kids who were younger than me, uh, volunteering in the middle school ministry, volunteering in other ways to work with kids. So if you're uh, an empty nester, or if you're uh, single, or if you're married and don't have kids yet, I think the burden of parenting uh, falls a little bit on our shoulders too. We're all a part of the kingdom of God. Uh, we should be praying for parents. You know, when I see parents struggling, first of all, I'm taking notes because I, I hope my day is coming. I get to learn. I hear it's good to learn from other people's mistakes. So please make them all for me so I don't have to. And I'll observe and write it down. Uh, but also, uh, you know, uh, I want to think about how can I help? And it's been a blessing for me to have parents trust me with their kids whether to babysit or to educate or through youth ministry and other forms, to help shoulder some of that burden. So whatever season of life you're in, I think this parenting series has been for all of us. It's a church-wide uh, church thing that we should all think about and focus on. Uh, with that said, 
the key text I want to think about today comes from Ephesians 6. It comes from Ephesians 6. And in verse 4 of Ephesians 6, he says this, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And some translators even think that word for fathers can mean just parents. Fathers were just the head of the house, so it meant parents, don't exasperate your children, but bring them up in the fear, uh, excuse me, bring them up in the instruction, uh, the training and the instruction of the Lord. What does exasperation mean? Well, it kind of has, it has many, it can mean many things, but it means two primary things. Uh, it means putting the wrong burden on your kid or putting no burden on them. It's a difference between being overbearing and putting all kinds of pressures. And I, I know this is true everywhere, but in, uh, when you're in a different culture, you notice the cultural differences quite profoundly. And all of Asia is like this, but education competition is very severe. And uh, the, the university market kind of runs the whole culture in some ways. And a lot of what we try to do as Christian educators is often uh, in conflict with this goal to achieve in a certain way. And so sometimes when I talk to parents, it's kind of like, you're putting a, a massive burden on your kid. And the suicide rate, uh, the day after the Korean or Japanese or Chinese version of the SAT comes out, that's the highest day for youth suicide they couldn't get into the university they wanted to get into. That is exasperation, an extreme form, but there are many other forms of that. Also, uh, sometimes I never get to meet parents as a teacher, and this is another form of exasperation, neglect. Sometimes it's minor, sometimes it's very severe, and there your kid is a bit listless and lost and, and doesn't know where they are in life, where they came from, who they are now, and where they're going. So basically, this text is saying, don't do that. Put this burden on them, the instruction, the training of the Lord, biblical worldview, an understanding of what the Bible says, what it means, and then how to respond, both in our actions and in uh, actual training and content. So what are the three arenas of child development? And I know Dad has talked a little bit about how at church, it's about 40 hours a year on average that at least time-wise, the investment is made into your kid to help form this biblical worldview. And this is a concentrated time, so in some ways it's, it's value, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, impact is outweighed by the fact that it's very concentrated and focused, uh, but the hours are actually quite small. And when you compare that with what happens in school, which we're talking about today, that's about a thousand hours a year that uh, your student, your child is being influenced. Then, of course, at home, uh, 3,000 hours on average, where the impact, and this is really where the difference is made, and I think Dad has made that point really clear, that if you kind of, if you win at home, the chances are good that you'll win at church, even if there's problems, or you'll win at school, even if there's problems there. Um, but, of course, school is a big deal. It's got a huge impact. And I have a bit of a longer introduction, because as I was thinking and praying about this, thinking about both what I experienced in South Korea, what I experienced as a student at Woodford County High School and middle school, uh, and then before that, even in Christian elementary school, uh, what I experienced, what is at stake and how are we doing as a church in this country, or in the West, so to speak? And one of the main things that's in conflict with the kind of training and instruction of the Lord is, is an ideology that is the opposite of that. And it's very prevalent, it's very prevalent 
and it's the idea of secularism. So briefly, I want to look at the Dictionary of Christianity in America. We're talking about education, so it's going to be a little bit of class today. Uh, so hang with me, and I, I hope this helps you process what is at stake. Maybe even you see it in your students now or in yourself. What is at war with a biblical worldview in your students and in yourself? Well, secularism denotes a religious commitment to this world or anything within it as ultimate. Secularization, a more ambiguous term, refers to a process, a transformation of the way in which people's traditional religion, whatever it may be, relates to their social and intellectual life. So it's basically the ideologies of the world coming into conflict with the ideologies we find in Scripture and from Christian history and from Christianity, okay? And, and the idea of secularization means that slowly it edges out, and instead of God being ultimate, what we see, what we can observe becomes ultimate. And it's basically the deification of self, of the individual. That means that I am the determiner of my soul, I'm the determiner, I'm the ultimate uh, I'm the highest form of being in the universe. So I'm the closest thing to God. Therefore, what I see, what I feel, what I want is what is ultimate. And this is something that we see in Scripture. It's not a new thing. We have new words for it. But if you will read with me here in Romans 1, uh, verses 20 uh, through 23, Paul talks about this. And he's referring to the events of the Old Testament and applying them to what he sees, then, sees at that time. 2,000 years ago, and we see the same thing today. In verse 20, he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, that is, his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Continuing on, verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images made to look like mortal human uh, being and birds and animals and reptiles. He's basically talking about the idols they worship. Now that may seem strange uh, to us that we, we don't have idols in that sense. Um, but if you travel anywhere around the world, where I am in Asia or in India, the most populated parts of the world, honestly, China, India, in other parts of Asia, they're still worshiping these things. And when we look at Western society, it doesn't look, we wouldn't call it a temple. Uh, but last night, uh, I, I real quick after the wedding, went to visit a friend who was at the new Kentucky bar. I uh, haven't followed Kentucky football as closely, and I'm sorry for those of you who are in mourning over the loss. But I, what I witnessed was people worshiping a cat. Right? Now, I, I love UK basketball. I'm a diaspora Kentuckian. I, I buy service so I can watch the basketball games like in midnight over with the time change. So I, I love Kentucky basketball. I get that. But what I saw was people who had nothing else in life really that, that mattered to them. Yeah. Idolatry is very much a Western reality as it is an Eastern one. Yeah. And we all have to decide. John Calvin, uh, the famous reformer, once said, the, the human heart is an idol factory. We're always finding things. We're always pouring out worship. We're finding things to worship other than God all the time. So whatever that might be. So what's a helpful way to think about this as we move forward? Uh, well, there's a, a very helpful man named Peter Jones who has a, a ministry called The Truth Exchange, and he wrote a book called The Other Worldview. And I just want to quote something from him as he reflected on this to help us think about these two ideas this morning. 
He says, I claim with the Bible that there are only two worldviews, one based on the ultimacy of the creation and the other based on the ultimate prior and all-determining existence of the creator. Creation and creator are the only two alternatives as divine objects of worship, the only possible explanations of the world we know. He goes on to say, the conflict is between two mutually exclusive antithetical belief systems. Our choice will affect the answers we give to those two important questions. Is there something rather than nothing? And if there is something, what is that something like? And again, that guy's name is Peter Jones. You can follow him on Facebook and his ministry, Truth Exchange, if you so desire. And he talks about this idea that there's really a oneism and a twoism. You either believe that what we see is all we have, again, what Paul says about they're worshiping the creation instead of the creator, or we worship the creator. That ultimately every religion falls into these two categories, every worldview falls into these two categories. And so the question I have, and I agree with, with that assessment, is how are we doing, again, nationally? And again, this may reflect what you see in your own family, it may not. But there was a landmark study done by a sociologist at Notre Dame. His name's Christian Smith. And his research has been utilized for the last, ever since it was published, as kind of the definitive assessment of how Christian youth are being trained in the faith. So I want to uh, spend some time. And again, I, I thought about doing this. It is a long quote. But um, the more I talk with parents, the more it seems like this kind of stuff is helpful for thinking through what we see. So without further ado, this is what he says, and then we'll move into the actual part of the sermon. So he starts out, and the quote I'm, I'm using, and his, this book is called Soul Searching, and it's a lot of research. It's not the most entertaining read, um, but he gets to these insights, and it's very revealing, and it matches my own kind of anecdotal experience. He says, nobody expects adolescents to be sophisticated theologians, but very few of the descriptions of personal beliefs offered by teenagers we interviewed, especially the Christian teenagers, came close to representing marginally coherent accounts of the basic important religious beliefs of their own faith traditions. They, they don't even really know what faith they were brought up in. He goes on to say, the majority of U.S. teens would badly fail a hypothetical short answer or essay test of the basic beliefs of their religion. Most teenagers held beliefs that, judged by their own religion's standards, were often trivial, misguided, distorted, and sometimes outright doctrinally erroneous. They're not only they don't know what they say, they believe something that's actually antithetical to what you would expect them to be taught. He furthermore says, uh, he, he says between this that he's not saying that teenagers are dumb. He doesn't believe that. He goes on to say, though, that the point is simply that understanding and embracing the right religious faith and belief according to their religions does not appear to be a priority in the lives of most U.S. adolescents and perhaps many of their parents. Faith is usually just there, around somewhere, and most teens do believe something religious or other, but, continuing on, religion simply doesn't seem consequential enough to most teenagers to pay close attention to and get right. Rather, most teens seem content to live with a low-visibility religion that operates somewhere in the mental background of their lives. And again, his name is Christian Smith, and we'll look at one more thing he says. But honestly, what I see um, is very much in line with that, that, he, that what he is saying, again, he, they researched the whole country and found some different things out, but that 
what seems to happen, with few exceptions, is that kids really don't know what it is they're supposed to believe. So when they go off into different educational environments, they just take it in. And so what has happened is they got a little bit of God over here, and then they get a lot of the world over here. And because what comes out isn't perfectly secular and isn't perfectly Christian, uh, a lot of parents I talk to are like, oh, they believe in God? Well, we're, we're good. Now let them go be successful and make money and have babies and do all the things that are successful in life. And what they found as a result, Christian Smith and his team tried to identify what would be the creed of the actual religion that seems to be emerging from many of the youth we see in today's, in today's youth in America. And so he says this. He says, we suggest that the de facto dominant religion among contemporary U.S. teenagers is what we might call, big word, but just hang with me, moralistic, therapeutic deism. And what he means by that is they know that there's some right and wrong. We have a list. We have a to-do list and a to-don't list. Therapeutic, it's supposed to make me feel good. And deism, there's a God. He's not really involved with anything. That's what deism is. And so I ask you, is that good enough? Of course, the answer from, from a Protestant Christian perspective and a Catholic, to be honest, is absolutely not. He says, the creed of this religion, as codified from, from what emerged from our interviews, sounds something like this. And so I share it with you so you can recognize it in yourself or in others and try to get yourself or your, your students somehow uh, on the right track. And I, as, as, before we continue, I just want to say, again, I'm not a parent, so there's no judgment up here. Uh, I, even when I'm you know, sharing about what I see in some students, I don't judge the parents. Even if I was, I... From what I've learned and from what I watch my parents go through, I know it's incredibly difficult. I'm preparing myself for that. This is a matter of put on grace, don't beat yourself up, and, and do what you know how to do. Pray yourself through it. Work with your community. And if you yourself or your students are having trouble in this area, then make forward progress. And also, sometimes I've seen parents nail it from what I could see, and the student still makes their own choices. So I would hate for any of you to leave feeling exasperated because I put an undue burden on you. Don't feel that way. Trust in God and in his grace and, and follow him into whatever path he's calling you to from what you learned today. So what does he say the creed of this moralistic therapeutic deism is? MTD, he says for short. He says, a God exists who created the order and created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Secondly, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to, particular, uh, need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And lastly, good people go to heaven when they die. So the major problem with this is that it is broadly religious, but it is in no way identifiable as Christian. Jews could believe this, Hindus could believe this, Muslims could believe this. There's no distinctively Trinitarian God. There's no image of God that we're created in. There's no exclusivity of Christ and his work on the cross. There's really no sin. It's a very tolerant. It's a very uh, open. And it's broadly moralistic. But it is not distinctively Christian. And so I ask, your, I ask you to consider yourself the state of youth today, and, and, and not just today, but ongoing, but is it good? Is it healthy? Kids today, often they don't know where they came from, they don't know where they are, they don't know where to go. 
And there's a lot of despair, a lot of anger, and there's a lot of uh, self, uh, selfishness. So what I want to contend for uh, as I present what I think is a biblical model for understanding education is that uh, when we think about where we come from, we need to remember our education in the garden, our education in the garden. And I want to look at just two verses from Genesis 2, and I want you to think about the Garden of Eden as an educational environment. In fact, it was German and French Christians who coined the term kindergarten because it was about a garden for children to learn. And that's where the kindergarten movement came from. So in verse 8, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Now we, we know he's a man, but Adam was also just born. This is his kindergarten. Furthermore, in verse 19, it says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature... That was its name. Now, is this not like a kid in preschool or kindergarten naming their toys, coming up with their friends and things like that? I didn't cite it here, but also this was a time for Adam to experience a form of failure. Look for a helper. You're not a helper. You're not a helper. You're not a helper. And then God provides him Eve, obviously. Education is a safe place to experience failure, to learn, right? You don't learn if you never fail at anything. And so that is the educational environment we came from. We were breathed the breath of God into us. We didn't come from nothing. What I mean to say is we didn't come from uh, no design, from no intelligence. We're not an accident. We have meaning. We have purpose. We have a creator. We have a father. If we fail to remember that, that's the beginning of all kinds of veering out of control. We don't know where we're from. We don't know where we're from. There's two major textbooks that Adam had. If we'll go to that, uh, the two major textbooks that Adam had were God's Word, the special revelation coming directly from God, and this should be on the next slide, and God's World. This is what we call general revelation. This is what Paul talked about in Romans, where we can see certain things about God. We can see God and what he had created. We learn about his design. We don't learn the details and specifics of his nature, but we do learn some things. God's World and God's Word, and these are the two things that we think about when we think about the kind of education we're getting, what's being emphasized. But first of all, what does secularism teach about where we're from? Secularism teaches education from the glob. You're an accident that came from cosmic slime. Somehow DNA happened, somehow your personality happened, but it didn't come from an intelligent creator. It came from an accident. It came from a cosmic accident. So when we look at this idea of, man, we're, we're from the garden where God formed us and shaped us and gave us purpose and meaning and set us on our course, versus the glob, who really has the better story? What is more satisfying just from a, from a, just a human standpoint? The garden is a much more compelling story. But this is how, uh, and I want to quote from a, from a very popular astrophysicist, you may have heard of him, his name's Neil deGuise Tyson, he's on Colbert a lot. Um, he's actually got a youth version of the book I'm going to cite coming out in February. And what they're trying to do is to take this glob story and, and imbue it with beauty and meaning. And I, 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 for one, I'm a glutton for punishment. I like reading books from people I disagree with. 
it kind of fires me up and motivates me to teach and stuff like that. And I, I don't hate uh, Neil deGuise Tyson. He represents what is commonly thought of. So I just want to read a couple slides of quotes, just a couple slides, and then quote what he says about, and this, the title of this chapter is The Greatest Story Ever Told. He's constantly appropriating biblical language to try to make sense of this kind of naturalistic, Darwinistic model of human origin. And this is what he says. He says, what happened before all this? He's talking about the Big Bang. What happened before the beginning? And he says, astrophysicists have no idea. Or rather, our most creative ideas have little or no grounding in experiential science. In response, some religious people assert with a tinge of righteousness, that's a little jab, I can take it, I'll jab back, that something must have started it all, a force greater than all others, a source from which everything issues, a prime mover. In the mind of such a person, that something is, of course, God. Yes. But what if, what if, now that's not satisfying to, to a secular mindset, these other things are. He says, but what if the universe was always there in a state or condition we have yet to identify, a multiverse, for instance, that continually births universes? Or what if the universe just popped into existence from nothing? Or what if everything we know and love were just a computer simulation rendered for entertainment by a superintelligent alien species? These philosophically fun ideas usually satisfy nobody. And what he's trying to do is, like, I know this is not satisfying, but he's trying to pull you into this because there's... He calls himself an agnostic because he can't prove God, so he says. But at the end of the day, he, they're trying to imbue this naturalistic narrative with meaning because there is no meaning in it. And they know that they have to find meaning from somewhere. So instead of using scientific language for his popularized book, he has to use language from scripture, religious language. There are some books being written today uh, by certain philosophers saying religion for atheists. And they basically come out and say that we can't provide ethics from a pure naturalistic standpoint. We have to borrow from religion. And he goes on, and he knows Christianity, but this is, this is a different philosopher. Uh, he knows religion very well, and he says, we're going to borrow this, but then leave this out, and we're going to be good without God. Failing the whole way to acknowledge that without Christianity, religion broadly, but Christianity specifically, there would be no model for goodness. Okay? So when Paul talks about feudal thinking, darkened minds, this is what he's talking about. It's with us today in just a new form. As we hear this and as we learn this and as we take education seriously, and I see this a lot, what's the trap? Okay, we're going to hit up on parent traps now. What's the trap? Our trap we might fall into is like, this is crazy. I'm going to protect it myself completely. I'm going to just wall myself off. I'm going to go join those Amish out where my sister got married, and we're just going to wall ourselves off. No, no harsh on the Amish. They're a little protected. Okay? We must remember our missionary mandate and not fall into the temptation of withdrawal. And I constantly tell our parents and some of our faculty this and remind myself of this, that when we see these things, we're not seeing the enemy. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. They may attack us. That's not our enemy. That's our calling. That's our calling. Now, it doesn't mean we, we, you know, hey, kindergartner, go preach to all your friends. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we can't fail to engage. And I just want to read quickly Jesus' prayer in John 17 as he talked about how he wanted his disciples and all of us to deal with the fact that we're in a world that's really dark when we're trying to be a light, and yet we have to be different but alongside them as missionaries. This is what he says, John 17, starting in verse 14. 
He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Continuing on, he says, they are not of the world, even as I am not. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth, the word and the world. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus knows this is going to be a struggle um, in any context. And he says, protect them from evil, but have them engage. Have them do what I'm doing. I came to serve, love, die. You may not be called to die, but die to yourself. And show these people in their futile thinking, in their darkened minds, what the light is. And uh, some of you were, were once that. I, you know, I was too, even though I grew up in a pastor's family. I had to make a decision to follow Christ. And it was many examples, my family, their friends, the church, that helped me see the light and continue. So we need to remember where we're from in the garden. But where are we now? Are we still in Eden? Absolutely not. Sin has clearly entered the world. We don't, we don't need much help getting reminders of that. What we need to do is remember our identity as exiles. And so I'm going to use a term because it's alliterative, um, but I, I don't mean my, maybe what you think it'll mean right away. So what I want to propose is that our educational experience now is in the ghetto. From the garden, in the ghetto. And I don't mean the hood. What I mean is we are outsiders. We are exiles. Now, I'm reminded of this often because I'm an outsider in the culture I live in, in South Korea. I've got an alien registration card to remind me every day and language barriers and so on and so forth. But sometimes uh, we can get very comfortable, especially in a, in, a, in a country that feels Christian. Even in Korea, it's 30% Christian, and I still find these little pockets of, of Christian bubbles um, around. And it's easy to think, oh, I'm, I'm kind of in a, a heaven now. It's like, no, we are, we are exiles, even here. And this is what God told the people in Israel when they left Jerusalem and went into Babylon. He says, this is what the Lord, this is Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Continuing on, he says, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which I have carried you into exile. Pray to it, pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so as we experience, you know, as Christians in this world, as outsiders, we are to bring prosperity, even when there's persecution. In here, sometimes, but in other parts of the world, this is quite a profound thing. Think of the Christians in Syria right now. How are they educating their kids? And they're there. Think of the Christians in India, which is becoming increasingly a Hindu state. Uh, Christians in Indonesia, Christians in China that I interact with quite frequently and missionaries uh, from Korea who are there. I went to Russia a few years ago and the Christians there are living in kind of a strange context. They don't need reminded that they are outsiders. Sometimes we might. So we need to remember, sin is real. We're not in the garden anymore. But what does secularism teach? I propose that secularism teaches that education is in the, in the gardens. We all make an Eden of our own. With the failure to recognize sin and the need for salvation comes the belief that we will educate ourselves into a utopia, an Eden of our own making. And so the trap that we might fall into when we do this is the trap of compromise. We have to maintain our Christian distinctives. 
We have a Trinitarian God. We're humans created in the image of God. The reality of sin is real. The exclusivity of Christ is not something we do to make ourselves seem better than others. It's a reality that we find in Scripture and through human history. Christ was both fully divine and fully human. And when he died, he was our perfect uh, Savior and a perfect representation of us and our sinful, uh, our sinful nature that he took on himself and died on the cross. Amen. So this next part is probably what many of you were hoping for and wanting when we came today. And that is, in the light of this, what's the best schooling method in a context like this in the ghetto? In the ghetto of, of, of a broken world where we're trying to follow God. Which schooling method is best for Christians? Is it, is it homeschool? Is it the classical Christian school you may have heard about? It's a little different. Christian schools, like the ones we have here and the one I teach at, or public schools. Here's what I have seen and what I believe. It depends on your student, it depends on your family, and it depends on the context. There's no one-size-fits-all. Typically, I've heard the advice that if you can homeschool, you should, and I think that's true many times. Um, But sometimes, uh, there's a great Christian school to send them to, and it's affordable. Sometimes it's not. Classical Christian schools kind of emphasize rhetoric and, and uh, medieval versions of education, if you haven't heard of that. I've been studying that and borrowing some ideas. But typically, there's basically a spectrum of how much emphasis God's word gets versus how much emphasis God's world gets. And in a public school, as you know, you can't really control how much of God's word impacts what you're studying about God's world. Now, at Woodford County High School, now I went to a Christian school when I was in elementary Um, And then I went to public junior high, and I struggled quite a bit. But after, with great support of my family and church, after that, I moved into a public high school, and after a little bit, I felt equipped as a missionary there. For some students, that's going to be true for them, not for all. Uh, It may be better to have a Christian school. And I ask you, with the help of your family and through prayer, assess your situation in community and make the best choice that you can. And like I said, if if you win at home, often you'll win there. What I will say is whatever method you choose, faith crises are going to happen, even in a Christian school, and you need to deal with them head on. One of the failures is that whenever we hear doubts from ourselves or from students, we think, oh, don't doubt. Uh, One of the guys I've been able to work with talks about the difference between doubting towards faith and doubting away from faith. There's plenty of doubters in Scripture. Even doubting Thomas, we give him a bad rap. But Jesus answered his questions. He answered his questions. Um, I'm not going to read it. I think we're, I might be going a little long on time. But I just want to cite quickly, there was a, the Fuller Youth Institute did a study uh, about how students retain their faith once they leave school. And one of the things they found, uh, and just real quick, he says, they say, while it's uh, often assumed that doubting our faith is wrong or even sinful, our research brings a counter perspective. At least in our study, students who feel the freedom and the opportunities to express their doubts tend to have more sticky faith. Uh, what they go on to say is that the, from their research, if students were not able to express their doubts and get answers to their questions, or at least have the freedom to express them, it festered and became toxic. And I've seen many of my friends, not just from here, but in other seasons of life, that's true of them. And they get real toxic, they get very burnt out on church because they feel like They can't get their questions answered, but they can go to YouTube, or they can go to this website, or that website, or this professor, and they're willing to engage everything, but Christians seem scared to talk about these things. And so their research says, have an environment, and I had that here. I had that here, and I had that from Christian teachers in the public school. 
um, very helpful and beneficial to me. So once we're clear on uh, where we're from and where we are, we have to have a, a goal, a purpose, an aim. And what I propose is that we remember when we come to this that education is to the glory, to God's glory. And I'll just cite the verse, 1 Corinthians 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And there's many verses we could have cited here. As I was writing this sermon, it kept becoming a curriculum. I've been thinking too much like a teacher, kind of like the difference between making a movie and a TV show. And I was like, okay, this is point one. And then I thought, I was like, no, this is season one. Um, and so I just kept it to this verse. I just kept it to this verse. And, uh, and the idea is that we are not doing this for anything other than the glory of God, both, both for now, that his kingdom would come now, as, as the Lord's Prayer says, but also in the future. Because things are not always going to go right. Things are not always going to go well. And you need to know where you're headed. Even when everything fails, well, God's still glorified. And we're going to be with him. So as we pursue education, we have to remember that. Now, secularism will teach education to my glory. Education to my glory. In the absence or the impotence of God, all that is left is self. Okay? Now, um... There was a study done by a psychologist at San Diego State, and again, I'll summarize this. Um, but she wrote a, she was, she wrote, she's a generational researcher, and so the upcoming generation about to enter college that has not known life without the internet and hardly known life without the smartphone, she's drawing out research, and basically this obsession with self is becoming pretty catastrophic. And so she, she goes on, her name's Jean Twin. She, this is not a Christian book, it's just the research is helpful to think about from a Christian perspective. And she calls them the iGen, i generation, the internet generation. Um, and this is after the millennials and the ones who are just now emerging into college. Uh, she says, iGeners look so happy online, uh, making goofy faces on Snapchat, smiling in their pictures on Instagram, but dig deeper and the reality is not so comforting. iGen is on the verge of the most severe mental health crisis for young people in decades. On the surface, though, everything is fine. She goes on to say, high school students and their, or their parents are already seeking help for psychological issues at an unprecedented rate. She says in 1983, only 4% uh, of high schoolers were seeking professional psychological help. Uh, but as uh, uh, recent as 2000, that figure has doubled. And then it rose to 11% in 2015. And she says there's an emphasis in the mental health profession to begin to prepare for this onslaught of mental health issues. Finally, another statistic that alarmed me as I read it is, uh, she said, in 2011, for the first time in 24 years, the teen suicide rate is higher than the homicide rate. And the gap grew larger from 2011 to 2014 at 32%. 32% uh, more people are killing themselves than murdering others. Uh, so they're more tolerant. They won't kill each other, but they're more uh, realizing the despair of focusing on yourself and killing themselves. And as I get older, I find more people I know are connected to, the suicide rate continues. And suicide rates are very high in Asia as well. So what's the trap we will fall into if we fail to remember God's glory? The trap is pride. This is the perennial sin. It's the bending of the will into itself and not aiming it towards God. It's focusing on creation, not the creator. We must aim all ambition and glory to God. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Not everything you want, but everything you need. So as we think about education for our kids, what's the best environment where they can come away with this worldview, with all the obstacles that are there? 
How can you avoid these traps as you make decisions? Uh, well, I want to provide just a few action steps as I thought through this. And take it for what you will, for what it's worth. The first thing that's clear is that parents, as well as everyone in church, as far as I'm concerned, we need to be involved in the education of youth. Be involved somehow. And it just may mean when you come to church and you see kids or parents, you pray. It may mean you offer to babysit so the parents don't lose their minds. Uh, and I always enjoyed that. I always had the energy. My wife and I still do it today because we have that opportunity right now. Um, it may mean volunteering in a school. It may mean volunteering in a youth group. Whatever it is, be involved somehow. Even if it's only through prayer, be involved. Secondly, and especially if you're parents, be involved in your kids' education. The second one is be engaged in mission. We need to remember that education is either a missionary enterprise in itself or preparation for mission. It's preparation to live a Christian life in a dark world, not disengaging, but not compromising either. How are they going to walk that tightrope? Well, they're going to have a lot of questions. So you need to be prepared to answer. You need to have some experiences about what it looks like uh, to encounter people who don't know the Lord and helping them come along, even as they're educated in all these ways. And finally, and if you get nothing else, I guess get this. Be at peace in God's will. The biggest mistake I see and that I guard against myself is fear. It seems like everyone's afraid of everything. There's many troubles in the world, and this is really where un the, undeveloped, the Christians from underdeveloped worlds and world places where there's a lot of conflict really help me. So many of them are fearless. Bombs blowing up around them, they're, they're educating their kids, preparing them to go out and be missionaries. Sending, at some point, China's going to send more missionaries than us. Now, you might think, well, they don't have many Christians. Yeah, but they got a billion people. So 1% of a billion is still a lot, right? And they're sending missionaries everywhere. And the Koreans are even talking about it because they send the second most missionaries than us right now. And they're 30% Christian. And the Chinese churches are now rising up and saying, now we want to give back. It's amazing. Be at peace in God's will and do not fear. Your kids may be having a hard patch. You may be having a hard patch. Don't make, don't respond in fear. Respond by trusting in God and following him. And he'll guide you. He cares more about all this stuff than we do. So we can trust him. We can follow him. I want to give the last word to God's word in Psalm 46. I just want you to, as you think about the traps you may fall into with your child's education, remember these words from the psalmist. He says, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Some of you may feel like that. I went to an earthquake last year. It's terrifying. Some of you feel like that in your life. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. Verse 5, God is within her. She will, uh, she will not fall, the city. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the fields with fire. And in conclusion, he says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. God, I ask that you be with us today. You help us as we think about the different educational decisions that we need to make, either in our lives or the lives of children or the lives of those around us. Uh, whatever way we're to be involved, that you would give us the wisdom that you uh, freely grant as we ask. 
Help us to know uh, where we're from, where we are, and where we're going. Help uh, our education to seal us into that worldview. Uh, we came uh, from a perfect garden with you, but sin entered the world, and now we live as missionaries and, and outsiders in a world that does not know you, and we try to introduce them to you. And help us as we think about the children growing up in you, how to appropriately protect them, um, but not make them think that uh, somehow they're, they're perfectly protected and safe in this world, uh, but that they're perfectly protected and safe in you as they go into the world. And finally, we remember our hope that even if all fails and everything collapses around us, that we are aimed at your glory and that no matter what happens, your glorious ends will be met, whether we see them or not in this life, that ultimately we can trust you and walk with you in all things. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.